I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking this morning really just at Romans 12 verse 12, which is a very short verse, but a very powerful verse, as I hope we'll all come to see. Uh, But to get the context, we'll begin reading in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Let's read now from God's holy word. The Apostle Paul has just written 11 chapters of rich theology laying out the gospel, and now he talks about the gospel in action. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent and spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. This is the word of God. Let's ask his blessing in our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this word in particular. We ask that as we consider Romans chapter 12, verse 12, that you would open our our ears and soften our hearts to understand, to receive, and to apply all that you lay before us today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about a hundred years ago, uh, the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield wrote a little article called, Is the Shorter Catechism Worthwhile? And in that article, he tells a story that uh, is an an interesting story, and I think really a very timely story for us today. He tells about uh, an an officer in the U.S. Army who was in a a great city out west when there was lots of of turmoil and, and, and rioting going on in this city. And as the officer was walking down the streets of this city in the midst of the chaos and confusion all around him, he noticed a man who stood out as completely calm, completely composed, 
He looked different than everyone else on the street. And the officer was so struck by the way that this man was carrying himself that as they passed each other, the officer kind of turned to look back at him. And as he did that, he found that the stranger had done the same thing. They stood there staring at each other for a moment, and then the stranger walked up to the officer. Without saying anything else, he he thumped his finger in his chest and said, what is the chief end of man? Which is the first question of the shorter catechism. The officer was a little surprised by that, as you can imagine, but he knew the answer, so he said, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the stranger stuck out his hand and said, I knew you were a shorter catechism man. And the officer said, I was thinking the same thing about you. Now, wouldn't we love it if that would happen to us? If we carried ourselves in such a way, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion, that people would stop and look and say, something is different about that woman. Something's different about that man. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people could tell just by looking at us that we were followers of Christ, if our lives were marked by something that set us apart? But of course, that raises the question, doesn't it? What what is it that should mark us as Christians? How can we walk in a way that would gain the attention of the watching world? Well, there are obviously many passages in the Bible that would speak to that question, but one of my favorites is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. As I mentioned with our scripture reading, Paul has laid out 11 chapters of theology talking about the gospel, and then in chapter 12, he gets to the so what. Here's what a gospel-shaped life looks like. That's what he's getting at in Romans chapter 12. And in verses 9 through 21, you'll see in your Bibles that Paul just piles up one imperative, one command after another to show us what it looks like to live as faithful followers of Christ, to describe what it is that marks us as Christians. You may even have that little heading in your Bible, the marks of the Christian or something like that. And so out of all of those commands, I want to just focus on the three commands that we have in verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Let's look at each of those three things together this morning. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Let's start with that first command. Rejoice in hope. What does that mean? Well, the key to understanding this command is to to get our heads around what the Bible means when it talks about hope. What is hope? Well, we use the word today, uh, and we often use it to mean something like wish or desire. So if you're talking to uh, a friend and you say, yeah, I I really hope I get this promotion, or we just got a, a used car and I'm hoping it'll last us for the next couple of years. What you mean is, I really want this to happen, but I don't know if it will or not. But of course, that's not the way that the Bible uses this word. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about hope. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not just talking about something that we want to happen. It's talking about something that will happen. Hope in the Bible 
is a confident expectation. That's how we could define it. Hope is a confident expectation. It's something that we look forward to with absolute certainty. So what is it that we as Christians hope for? Well, Paul doesn't define it in this verse, I think in part because he's already talked extensively about hope back in Romans chapter 8. We read from it together just a few moments ago. And if you'll remember in verses 22 through 25, uh, Paul says this about what we hope for and what hope is. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." There's a lot going on in those verses, but just notice two of the things that Paul says we hope for as Christians. First, he says that we hope for the redemption of creation. Think about that. Paul looks around at the suffering and the evil in this world, at the viruses and the tornadoes, the floods, the pollution, and he reminds us That we as Christians have hope, that is, we have a confident expectation that God will put all things right in the end. One of the themes of the book of Job that we've been looking at in Sunday mornings together is the fatherly sovereignty of God. Tessa talked about this in her testimony on Wednesday night as well. We believe that God is sovereign. We believe that he uses that sovereignty to bless his people, even in, or perhaps especially in, the midst of suffering. And Paul here is really drawing out an application of that truth. He says we can have confidence as believers in the midst of suffering that God will fix all that is broken in our world. That's the first thing he says we hope for. And second... He says, we hope for our adoption as sons, for the redemption of our bodies. So you see, there are two sides to this hope, aren't there? Uh, on the one hand, we have a hope that is, that is cosmic, that is universal, the redemption of the world from sin and corruption. And on the other hand, we have a hope that is personal and specific, the redemption of our bodies and our souls from sin and corruption as we are adopted as sons. That's what Paul means by hope. That's what we're hoping for. We're hoping for that day when when everything will be set right, the day when everything will be made new, the day when sin and sorrow and suffering and disease and the very fallenness of our world is dealt with once and for all. We are hoping for a renewed humanity that dwells in a renewed creation for the glory of God and the good of the church. Is that what you hope in? Is that what you rejoice in? We're called to look to that future promise and rejoice. But of course, when we look at that future reality, 
That's not what we experience today, is it? I mean, just look around you. As you read the headlines, uh, do you see a renewed and redeemed world? Are those the adjectives you would pick to describe our world? Or do you see chaos and confusion? Would you describe your body as redeemed? Or do you feel the effects of sin and sickness? We have a very visible reminder of our frailty right now, don't we? We can gather together, but we have to keep our distance. Many of us are wearing masks. Why? Because our bodies are weak. We can catch sicknesses. We can give sicknesses to one another. We don't yet see what we hope for. Remember, that's exactly what Paul said we should expect. When he defined hope, he said that's what hope is. Hope is looking for what you don't yet see. If you see it, it's not hope. And I think that's why Paul gives his second command in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, right after this. Not only are we to rejoice in hope, but we are to be patient in tribulation. Let's look at that together. Be patient in tribulation. The word that's used here for tribulation has the idea of being, being pressed or pressured by something. So this could be a difficult circumstance. It could be loneliness or sickness or, or persecution for your faith. And these are all things that we as Christians experience, aren't they? Many of you have probably faced all of these things in one uh, time or another in your lives. Because the reality is being a believer doesn't just make life easy. It doesn't get rid of the suffering. In fact, Paul speaks of tribulations, of suffering, as a normal part of the Christian life. This is what we should expect to have in our lives. And if 2020 has taught us anything so far, it's that that is a very fair expectation. We know, as Jesus said, that in this world we will have trouble. In health, in politics, in economics, in social relationships. What we see on all sides are overwhelming examples of brokenness and suffering. And there are many other trials that the members of this congregation go through that don't make it into the headlines every day, aren't there? Some of you are fighting with loneliness and depression. Some of you are longing for a marriage or a child that God has not yet seen fit to give. Some of you may be facing the loss of, of income or a job or, or of your business. I'm sure every single one of us could list some trial that we're going through even right now. These trials, Paul recognizes, are real. But they don't define the Christian life. Remember a few minutes ago we said that, that one of the marks of the Christian is found in how they respond to suffering. And I think that point becomes clear when we put these first two commands together. Rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. You, you see, the first command is about how we are to respond to the prospect of the future. While the second command is about how we are to respond to the pain of the present. It's as if Paul is pointing out that there's often a gap that exists between what we hope for on the one hand and what we have on the other. 
What we hope for is the renewal and redemption of all things. What we have is trials and sufferings. And as Christians, Paul says, we are called, we are commanded to respond to those trials with patience. But how do you do that? How how can you be patient when there's very real pain that you're going through right now? How can you rejoice in something that you don't even yet have? Well, that really brings us to Paul's third command. Be constant in prayer. You see, prayer is what enables us to both rejoice in the future and be patient in our present pain. To quote Matthew Henry, prayer is a friend to hope and patience. Prayer is a friend to hope and patience. All three of these commands then, while they can be distinguished, must never be divided. They hold together. They aren't separated from one another. Here's how one commentator put the relationship between these three things. He said, each of these exercises, hope, patience, and prayer, helps the other. If our hope of glory is so assured that it is a rejoicing hope, we shall find the spirit of patience and tribulation natural and easy. And since it is prayer which strengthens the faith that begets hope and lifts it up into an assured and joyful expectation, and since our patience and tribulation is fed by this, it will be seen that all depends on our perseverance in prayer. You can almost draw a, a circle, right, with arrows from hope leading to patience, leading to prayer, leading to hope, round and round again. And we can think of, of prayer, then, as one of the primary things that, that fuels, that, 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 cur- that nurtures hope and patience. So, in other words, a hopeful life is a praying life. A patient person is a praying person, which means that part of the answer to the question we raised about what marks us as Christians is this, prayer. A Christian man is a praying man. A Christian woman is a praying woman. Prayer is essential to the Christian life. And since prayer is so vital then, it's important for us to spend a little bit of time looking at what the Bible has to say about prayer, about its purpose and about its practice. What is the purpose of prayer? What is prayer for? Well, I think Paul hints at the answer to this by placing this call to prayer alongside these commands to have hope and be patient. You see, prayer, according to Scripture, is not about changing God. It's about changing you. It's not about reshaping God's will, but about reshaping our wills. Prayer is designed by God's grace to pull you out of yourself, to get your own thoughts and fears and worries to be quiet so that God's thoughts and God's commands and God's promises can ring out loud and clear. So how do we pray? What does the practice of prayer look like? 
Well, the Bible says a lot in answer to that question, but let's just limit ourselves to what Paul says here in verse 12. Be constant, is what he tells us, in prayer. What does that mean? Well, the word that's used here for constancy has has the idea of, of being devoted to prayer and of persisting in the discipline of prayer. So it brings into view both our attitude toward prayer and our activity of prayer. So the question that this command raises for us is, how do you view prayer? Well, one diagnostic question you can ask yourself, and this may be a good thing to reflect on or or talk about at your Sunday lunch together, do I, as an individual, or, or do we, as a family, do I treat prayer like exercising or like eating? Now stick with me for a minute. What's the difference between those two things, exercising and eating? Well, we all know that we should exercise. We know it's important. We know it's good for us. But for for many of us, I'll speak for myself at least, exercise, practically speaking, is often treated as kind of an, an optional extra. If I have the time and the energy to do it, great, I'll exercise. But if not... It's not really something that I view as essential to my life. But we treat eating a little bit differently than that, don't we? We have to. You you can't treat eating as optional. You will starve. And so all of us, and, and maybe some of us more than others, continue steadfastly in eating. We're devoted to it. So what about prayer? How do you view it? Is it like going to the gym? I'd like to do it if I can. Or do you treat it like food? I must have this to live. Isn't it interesting that Jesus actually uses this kind of imagery in John chapter 4 when he said, it is my food to do the will of God. And the will of God in this case would be to pray. Be constant, Paul commands in prayer. So what would it look like to order our lives around prayer? What would it look like for the members of Harvest Church to be people who rejoice in hope or or are patient in tribulation? Well, of course, the paradigmatic answer to that question is found in the life and ministry of Christ. Jesus shows us by his life and sacrifice, what it means to rejoice in hope and to be patient in tribulation and to be constant in prayer. Just think about how Christ carried himself as he marched to the cross. Even as he was approaching a level of suffering and shame that we can scarcely imagine, he did so rejoicing with joy in view. That's what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says. It says that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And then it draws the line from Christ's example to our lives in the very next verse when it says, So consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or be faint-hearted. Jesus rejoiced in hope. 
Think of how Christ carried himself in the suffering of the cross. As he's marched from one mock trial to the next, charged with one false charge after another, he was able to bear it patiently and willingly. When they accused and mocked him, he was quiet. When they flogged and flayed him, he endured. When they pushed thorns into his brow and his hands were pierced with nails, he bore it all. Jesus was patient in tribulation. And think of how Christ began and ended his sufferings. He did it with prayer. As he's waiting to be betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus do? He prayed. He wrestled with God in the Garden. And after he had walked through all of his suffering and shame of his his trials and his crucifixion, his final words on the cross were a prayer. Father, into my hands, into thy hands I commit my spirit. From Gethsemane to Golgotha, Jesus was constant in prayer. And in every area of his life and ministry, Christ was marked by these things. And so it's only fitting that we as followers of Christ should be marked by these things as well. And part of the glory of the gospel is this. Jesus doesn't just give us a shining example to follow. He enables us and empowers us and invites us to follow in that example. Jesus is not just our model. He is our mediator as well. Which means he he doesn't just show us what it looks like to rejoice in hope. Jesus is our hope. He doesn't just show us what it looks like to be patient in tribulation. Jesus actually walks with you through the midst of your tribulations. He doesn't just model what it means to be constant in prayer. He is the very one who not only hears our prayers, but intercedes for us with the Father. Remember how Paul began this chapter back in verse 1. He said, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is only ever by God's mercy that we can have the kind of of hope and patience and prayer that Paul calls us to in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. So friend, if, if you feel like you lack hope, as we often do, remember that Jesus is the one who has secured all that we hope for through his life and his death and his resurrection. If you find yourself impatient in the midst of trials, as we so often do, remember what Isaiah said about Christ as the Messiah in Isaiah 63, verse 5. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. When you feel your weakness in prayer, as we so often feel, Remember, as we read from Romans 8, that it is the Spirit of Christ who intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. 
In Christ, the merciful God has secured your eternal hope. In Christ, the merciful God will carry you through every trial. In Christ, the merciful God makes up for all that is lacking in our prayers and petitions. And so it is by the power and the grace of Christ that we are freed to follow in His example. The mark of the Christian is hope and patience and prayer. Which is really just another way of saying that the mark of the Christian is Christ-likeness. And in the midst of our, all the chaos of our world, Christ is exactly what we need. It's exactly what the world needs. So let us then, by the mercies of God, follow Christ. Let us then, by the mercies of God, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this word that convicts us for our hopelessness and our impatience and our prayerlessness. And yet this word as well, Lord, that comforts us. To see that Christ has done what we cannot do, that he has fulfilled each of these commands so that we might be freed to follow him in fulfilling these commands by his spirit. Lord, I pray for Harvest Church. Let each of us as individuals and, and each of our families be living, breathing, walking examples of what it looks like to rejoice in hope and to be patient in tribulation and to be constant in prayer. We pray all these things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's respond now to all that God has put before us as we stand and sing Trinity Hymnal number 676, day by day and with each passing moment.
people uh, of God, receive now the Lord's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.